From simple to gourmet, nothing's fresher or tastier in recipes than homegrown, vine-ripened veggies and savory herbs. Do you grow your own? With Bonnie Plants, a kitchen garden at your back door or in containers can produce an amazing harvest for cooking and for sharing. Find how-tos, plans, and more at bonnieplants.com. Your recipes might not change, but your results sure will. Fresh, healthy Bonnie veggies and herbs. Get growing. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good evening and welcome to Foment About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Isaac. And I'm Chris Kuzmi. And we're your co-hosts on this weekly journey of all things fermented. Archived on Stitcher, iTunes, and also right here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. It is Monday, April 14th, 2014. We're fresh back from the Craft Brewers Conference in Denver, Colorado. and uh, But there's other stuff going on in town. Mary, what's up? Did you have an announcement? No. Oh, well, I do. I have an announcement. Uh, our favorite beer author, or one of our many favorite beer authors, <laughs> uh, John Palmer is coming to town um, and will be have a full weekend, uh, including an uh, American Home Brewers Association rally at... at uh, Finback. Thank you very much, Finback. <laughs> uh, and also at Bitter and Esters on Saturday, May 3rd. May 4th is at, uh, is at Finback. And also May 4th in the evening, uh, I'll be hosting him at 508 Gastro Brewery, if you can't make it out to Queens. So... Uh, from six to nine. Yep, and he'll be on the show on that Monday. Yes, we're excited to host him there. But also, there's a really great event coming up on April 26th. What's that, Mary? April 27th? 7th? Yeah. Hey, Sunday, Eric. April 27th. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, our guest today is Eric Steen. Eric, how are you doing? Hey. <laughs> What's up? Welcome. Where are you calling in from? Yeah, thanks. It's great to be on, and good to hear your voice again. It's really great. I'm sorry that I'm actually personally going to miss the event that you're hosting. Tell us about the event. Yeah, um, it's a pop-up pub. We're, I'm working with uh, over 25 homebrewers uh, around New York City to uh, make beer inspired by uh, the neighborhood around the Wide Hotel. Nice. And we're going to serve that beer to people for the uh, Food Book Fair. Um, the Food Book Fair is a three-day event that um, kind of celebrates a foodie culture and people who publish and write about it. And so this is going to be like the hit event on Sunday, April 27th. Sunday the 27th. Uh, sadly, Mary and I cannot be there because we'll be at TAP New York, but we are sending beer along, and we're very excited to have it at least represented in there at the yeah. hotel. We met you first, uh, was three years ago you came through to New York City? I'm sorry. What was that? When, when, when were you in New York City last? Uh, we met you uh, when you did your first pop-up here in New York City. Yeah, yeah. I did a pop-up pub with, uh, for the Performa Festival in 2011. So that was in November and uh, I worked with you guys on that and about 31 other homebrewers. Um, that event was a blast. That was uh, an awesome event. I mean, you know, yeah. came back feeling like that for one night only, it was the best bar in Manhattan. You know, it was yeah. pretty, or in all of New York. It was very cool. 
and a yeah, lot of really, yeah. really creative uh, things. And celebrating uh, the ingenuity and, and craftsmanship of homebrewers is, is very fun. How long have you been doing this, and have you done this in other cities? Uh, yeah, I have. I, I did it in Glasgow, Scotland as well, and that was for the uh, Glasgow International Festival of Visual Arts. Um, a lot of times I get to do these things for art festivals and uh, food fairs and uh, art museums and things like that. Um, but that, that's, I've done pop-up pubs in those three city, or uh, those three times. And how did you, how did you, um, the idea of having this pop-up homebrew pub originate? Um, <laughs> it's a good story. There's this guy named uh, Dean Pottle here in Portland. Uh, I, so I live in Portland, Oregon. And uh, he's got this uh, speakeasy bar. It's the only place in the city where you can go to drink and smoke. But, um, like you, can all, you can't smoke anywhere else, in, in any other bar in Portland. It's just this guy's house, though. And so um, if his neon sign is on on his house, you can actually walk around into his backyard, <laughs> down into his basement, and you can drink with him all night long. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And so he kind of, you know, was the original inspiration for this thing that I decided I would try to do on a larger scale. <laughs> In college, before I started homebrewing, actually we had a we had a house that we named Norman, and we when we threw parties we'd throw we we had a flag post out in our front yard. We'd throw up this the Norman flag, which was made out of a pillowcase, but it basically meant we're we're open for hanging. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> good good times, good old Norman. I miss yeah. that house. So you have another project that's called Beers Made by Walking. Tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, yeah, thanks uh, for asking. Um, it's really fun. It's um, I invite brewers to go on nature hikes, and then we identify edible and medicinal plants, and then we make beer with the plants that we see on the trail. So, um, in a sense, like each beer becomes a type of portrait of the, the trail that we're on that day. I've done this in Colorado, Oregon, and Washington, I don't have plans to do it in New York, but would love to. Um, and yeah, we've we've it's the brewers sometimes forage ingredients. Sometimes they usually they source them commercially, but it's always kind of a look at the landscape and a way to think about beer in a really geographical place-based indigenous ingredient sort of kind of way. That's awesome. We were talking about that when you did a botanicals. Uh, brewing with botanicals show and found out that there are actually some some foraging tours uh, for both Prospect Park and Central Park, um, and I'm, yeah. I've, I've been dreaming of doing exactly what you're talking about. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, it's it's definitely exciting. Yeah, I think the city is kind of it's a it's a rough place here though because I think the city is cracking down and doesn't want foragers through the parks even though they're not doing anything with them or with the, yeah. with the edibles. Yeah, but I still think, you know, like you said, some of your breweries would be inspired by things that you you guys saw on the hike but would order it commercially. So right. I think that would definitely yeah. be a viable project to do to do um out here and other places. Even for yeah. even for um, you know, home brewers or or state brewing organizations or city brewing organizations, I think that would be a cool challenge for almost any kind of brewer. Yeah, I agree. It, it's a lot of fun and um and yeah, I mean in most in most places you don't you, it's not 
not only it's like kind of frowned upon to forage unless you really know what you're doing and in, in a lot of parks you actually need permits and things like right. that and um, sometimes if you don't really know what you're looking at you could potentially harm yourself so it's best I think to source commercially but it's definitely a great challenge for any brewer um, and I think it's really good to get outside every once in a while and like learn something about what you're looking at and what grows around you and yeah it's, it's good what were um, a couple of the memorable beers that you that were made as part of this project oh man there's <laughs> There's some really great ones and some very strange ones. Um, <laughs> uh, one beer that is really memorable was actually by a home brewer um, that they uh, Pikes Peak Brewing in Monument, Colorado, ended up brewing it because um, they liked the home brewer's version so much. It was a sour mash uh, beer with choke cherries, which grow indigenous in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another one uh, here in Portland from Coalition Brewing that had uh, salmon berries and stinging nettles. Um, and then stinging one nettles. one that just blew my socks off was uh, w- we worked with Deschutes Brewing and made a uh, Juniper Sage IPA, and that actually won a silver medal at the uh, in the indigenous category last oh. year for GABF. Nice. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that beer, that beer was insane. Um, and then there's this funny story. Um, there was a definitely untested ingredient was called uh, Sweet Root by um, Standing Stone Brewing in Ashland, Oregon. And the thing was like a super licorice-tasting bomb, you know. It was like totally insanely weird-tasting. <laughs> um, people started burping, and the whole pub started smelling like licorice. And they had to, like, um, purge the lines, and, you know, they actually had to get new lines in the, in the um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, uh, Standing Stone came back this year with, like, a really amazing um, beer with honey and yarrow, and um, uh, there was something else. Oh, uh, St. John's Wort. It was actually really, really tasty. I'm very jealous. I want to taste all these. I want to live yeah. here. Yeah. Very cool. So to wrap up, we're going to say that on Sunday, April 27th, is you are going to be, you've put together the Brew Pub, which is part of the Food Book Fair at the Wythe Hotel in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. There's two sessions from 2 to 5 p.m. and 6 to 9 p.m. And tickets are still available for both sessions as of right now. Mm-hmm. And um, you can go to foodbookfair.com to get more information as well as tickets to the event and eric's um has his portfolio and other projects that he's worked on on his website eric m steen that's e-r-i-c-m-s-t-e-e-n.com eric thank you so much man and uh, sorry for being so late with my information on the beer that i'm, <laughs> I'm bringing um what are some other favorites of those really quickly yeah um, there, there's some really great looking beers. There's an oyster stout with, uh, some local oysters. There's, uh, a beer made with, uh, figs from a fig tree in Williamsburg. Yes. Um, and then there's all sorts of beers, uh, inspired by historical characters, including the first, uh, Dutch colonist. So that's 
said, wet your appetite. Nice. <laughs> Very cool. Dark the North. Yeah. And maybe we, we might make it back in time for a little bit of this of the second session. So hopefully um, yeah, we'll see you then. Yeah, yeah you got to try. We, we should <laughs> we be back by will. like 8, I think. Yeah. We'll come straight there. Uh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Eric, thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Yeah, cheers. Much love. All right, so thanks a lot to Eric. We're very excited about pouring our beer at the, uh, having our beer poured at the Brew Pub. It's food, uh, part food. of the Food Book Fair. <laughs> so as Chris mentioned before, we just got back from the Craft Brewers Conference in Denver, Den- Denver, Colorado. It was an absolutely amazing event that's put on by the Brewers Association, as well as a host of sponsors um, that really allows craft brewers, distributors, uh, beer bars, um, and all kinds of people to get together and learn a little bit and network and socialize and drink great beer together. So it was an absolutely amazing experience. We were very fortunate this year to have the keynote speech done by Michael Pollan. And after awesome. the um, after the keynote speech, I, I got a chance to interview him. So we're going to play that right now, and we'll go to break immediately after. And after that, we'll come back and talk about what we learned at the CBC and kind of the new stuff that's out there. Craft Brewers Conference in Denver, Colorado with author Michael Pollan. Your most recent book is Cooked and you um, devote a whole section of it on fermentation. Fermentation, So I thought it was an absolutely wonderful book and particularly delightful chapter to see fermentation being paid that much attention to. (laughs) Actually, two of the sections depend on fermentation. There's a bread section and there's uh, other fermented foods, cold fermented foods. And you know, when you, when you think about cooking, I think about it in terms of transformation, the, the really fundamental transformations of nature into culture. And fermentation is one of the... People don't always think of it as cooking, but of course it is cooking. It's a, a very profound transformation. So I looked at uh, bread baking, um, and then I looked at uh, pickling vegetables and making cheese and then beer. Um, and it was, for me, the most exciting part of the, the research. Yeah, and you, I mean, you have... First of all, very easy to read, as all your books are. But it's also, you have a lot of information, and I feel like a lot of insights, and it would, I mean, really, it's a wonderful read. But I particularly wanted to ask you, so in this process of, of writing about fermentation or doing work with fermentation, you homebrewed with your son yeah. as well as a friend. So I just wanted to ask you kind of what that was experience was like for you. Well, you know, homebrewing, it's funny. I mean, a lot of things I did you can do by yourself. You don't mm-hmm. need help baking bread. But if you're homebrewing, it's really nice to have someone else around because there's a lot of standing around the stove time, and there's a lot of, you know, while the while the word is cooling time and frankly you know those those carboys are heavy yes. <laughs> and so it's very it's it's nice to have someone to help you especially a strapping young 21 year old which is what my son was uh, actually he was younger than um, but um, uh, so I find it as as one of those uh, communal processes and that was one of the nice things about it and we had some really sweet times together um, brewing and talking while we're brewing and you know the best way to talk to a teenager is when you're doing something not just face to face and um, so that became a really nice activity for us and then I connected with an old friend who turned out to be a really good home brewer I mean much better than I am and he had invested in the equipment and, and, and took the kind of care that you need to and he's doing all grain brewing which I wasn't at that level yet and uh, so I learned a lot from him because wherever you live you'll find a community of mm-hmm. these people and in general they tend to be really generous about sharing, um, sharing information, sharing techniques, sharing supplies. And um, uh, so actually when I first started, I borrowed things from another friend. I didn't, I didn't invest at all. I borrowed everything. And then I, gradually I started investing in stuff. Um, so there's something very uh, collegial about the people who do home brewing. And then there are tours. You know, Berkeley, there's a, um, 
uh, a tour de ferment where people go around on bicycles from one uh, group up to another, which seems really dangerous considering they're drinking at every, <laughs> yes. at every step, but no one's been hurt yet. Yeah. We also have homebrew tours in, uh, in New York City, actually. Um, and then I also wanted to ask you, you talked a little bit about this in your keynote speech this morning as well as in the book, but how you see homebrewing and professional craft brewing fitting into you know, the local food movement and what's happening yeah. really in the food world today. Well, I think that um, craft brewing is part of the food movement. Um, you know, beer is food, and uh, so I don't really make a distinction. And they have the potential to drive the food movement to the next frontier, which is grain. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, the food movement has has dealt with produce, fruits and vegetables to a large extent, has dealt with meat, sustainable meat. Um, people know how to do it. They're having success doing it. But 90% of our agriculture is grain. So if we're really going to reform American agriculture, we have to confront grain. And brewers and bakers are, will be the drivers. And, uh, and we're starting to see local grain economies. There's, there, it's popping up in the Pacific Northwest. It's popping up in the Midwest. It's popping up in, in Northern California, New York State. And so I think this is really the next frontier. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to this group is that they can drive it with their purchases, with their, you know, communicating to the growers, look, we want barley that tastes a certain way, that tastes at all, and uh, same with hops. So um, anyway, I think they, they have a very important role to play. Good. Well, great. Thank you so much for your time, Thank and you. it was a pleasure meeting you. Nice to meet you, too. Thank you. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. A man about it over here. <laughs> Welcome back. So we heard a great interview um, that I was really <laughs> excited to, to uh, do with Michael Pollan, who was the keynote speaker at the Craft Brewers Conference in Denver, Colorado, that was took place last week. Um, so actually, that really ties into one of our favorite seminars um, at 9 a.m. on Thursday morning, Chris and I attended a seminar that was featured five different craft maltsters from around North America. I have a list here. Um, We heard from Colorado Malting Company, Grouse Malting and Roasting, Maltry Frontenac, Riverbend, and Valley Malt. Um, They had all sent one, a single type of malt that that, that they do uh, to New Belgium Brewing Company. New Belgium then took each of those malt and did five 
single malt beers based on the same recipe. And then they did a six beer with Maris Otter, um, which is from Simpson. And that's a very, you know, traditional barley that, that many brewers are familiar with. So we got to sit down and taste these six different single malt beers side by side. Also hear from the craft maltster. And uh, it was absolutely fascinating. That was probably my favorite seminar that I attended and one of the most informational. And it's just super exciting to see craft maltsters out there and doing these amazing malts. I mean, the malts tasted so different, first of all. And much of their point was you want to taste the grain and taste where it's from. And and, and, uh, it it was awesome to see those individual characteristics of where they came from. Um, and how that kind of came into play. Yep. And I think that's a great thing for any, I mean, especially now that we're having, that we have more craft maltsters, it's a great thing even as a home brewer or a professional brewer. You know, if you're ordering a new um, a new malt from a craft maltster, you really want to do, it's, you know, on some kind of pilot level, you know, a beer with that, like a single malt beer, so you can really grasp what that malt is bringing to the table as far as aroma, color, um, obviously also um, efficiency, Mm-hmm. And it really plays into what Michael Pollan was saying about taking taking over in, as far as the locavore and, and slow mo- food movement and kind of encouraging more malting and grain produce. Mm-hmm. So we talked to Andrew Stanley from Valley Malt, who we've known for a while. Um, we got a, to talk to her after the seminar. She actually started the Craft Maltsters Guild um, in North America, and we're going to play a short interview with her right now. All right, so we're here at the 2014 Craft Brewers Conference in Denver, Colorado, with Andrea Stanley, co-owner of Valley Malt and founder of the Craft Maltsters Guild. Hi, Andrea. Hey, Mary. And we just came out of an absolutely fantastic seminar that had featured five craft maltsters in North America, one from Canada, Colorado, you... um, Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah, and, and then another gluten-free malt house in Fort right. Collins, Colorado. And it was super fascinating. Um, each of the maltsters actually um, provided malt to New Belgium. New Belgium brewed a different beer with the same same profile otherwise outside of the single malt. And we got to taste them all and, and hear you guys talk to them. And it was absolutely amazing experience to be able to talk to, to taste those back-to-back mm-hmm. and side-by-side. There was so much difference. There is a huge difference uh, you know, in the varieties that the maltsters use. And a lot of those varieties are being grown because they grow well in the region that they're from and then also just in each maltsters process so you know you had maltsters up there that are um, malting pneumatically which means that you're blowing forced air through the grain and then you have maltsters that are doing more traditional malting where the grain is on the floor and so uh, I think a lot of the flavor differences that you were tasting today came from you know where the barley was grown the soil that it was grown in the variety that was used selected by the farmer but also in the process of that in, in the malt house. So tell me a little bit about the uh, Craft Monsters Guild. So when did you started it, and was it last year? We started it in 2013. Uh, A group of us had become a Google group back in 2012 where we were using that, you know, medium to be able to talk to each other and learn from each other and ask questions and and we started to become a pretty active community and seeing more and more people interested in starting malt houses we decided that it would probably be good sooner rather than later to form an association and so uh, going back to sort of the traditional roots of malt houses being everywhere we thought you know calling ourselves a guild really resonated with everything that we're trying to do. And what are some of your goals and aims in in forming this group? 
Well, um, I would say one of the major goals is that we're trying to establish quality standards because I think whenever you have a lot of people coming into a new industry and you know kind of recreating that industry, um, it's good to make sure that quality is going to be of utmost importance mm -hmm. um, and safety as well. And then um, we're also looking for uh, more practical, accessible methods to do malt analysis. I would say that's kind of one of the challenges that craft maltsters face is that um, it's very expensive to start an in-house lab. And it's also very expensive, and there's only really one lab to send uh, your malt out for analysis. So to be able to know what we're doing and learn about our, you know, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, and also to be able to give information to our brewers about the malt that they're getting, that malt analysis is really critical. So I would say that's one of the things that, you know, we have as a pretty major goal um, for the coming year. And also ongoing is going to be trying to find more uh, barley varieties that are more regionally adapted for areas like New York, North Carolina, Texas, where some of these craft malt houses are popping up. So there's a lot of work being done out there by barley breeders, but they're most, it's mostly being done in traditional areas like North Dakota and Montana mm -hmm. and um, up in the Saskatchewan area of Canada. And so um, I think, you know, those breeders know what they're doing and they and there's very you know easy ways to sort of do more multiplication of variety trials and try to find places or try to find varieties that are going to do well and so that's another huge component if we're going to you know be putting good malt out there good malt starts in the field and certainly that starts with having varieties that are happy where they're being grown so that's uh, i would say another huge focus of ours and then just really trying to do a lot around education because um when you're getting into something like craft malting kind of like craft brewing 30 years ago or 40 years ago where did you go to learn how to become a craft you know maltster how to become a craft brewer um there really aren't a lot of educational opportunities out there and so we're hoping through our guild to be able to point people in the right direction of where they can become educated, pointing them toward resources, and eventually once our guild, you know, is able to do more, we'd like to be able to start providing some of those educational resources, so putting out white papers, you know, being part of research if that, you know, seems like a good avenue to go down. Mm -hmm. And how many uh, craft maltsters are there in in North America right now? Well, how many members do you have? I guess would be we story. have about a dozen regular members. Mm -hmm. To be a regular, to be a regular member, you have to be actively producing malt, and then um, to uh, and you have to be sourcing at least fifty percent of those ingredients from within your region. So okay, we have cool. twelve members right now, um, but then we also have probably about another three dozen associate members. And the associate members can be anywhere, anyone from the industry that wants interested and wants to be part of our community. So aspiring maltsters, um, breeders, brewers, distillers, farmers. Those are some of our associate members. Very cool. Great. Thanks so much for talking to us, and we look forward to having you on the show in the future. <laughs> awesome. So thanks again to Andrea Stanley. Um, we're going to also have – so we're definitely going to do a craft malting show, at least one. Um, and we got – we'll have some of these other – we'll have Andrea on as well as some of the other craft malters that maltsters that we met at the – craft brewers conference um so one of the other most exciting things is i went to a another seminar that introduced well first of all let's roll back a little bit so most of you guys are might be aware that there are kind of two different classes of hops there's privately um release you know trademarked hops that are grown and then there are public hops 
Um, and the last public hop release was, I think, almost 10 years ago. Um, so we're very excited it, to see that there are there are actually four new public hop varieties that were introduced to the public in late 2013. So I went to a seminar that was jam-packed and absolutely amazing um, that they, the, they actually brew. I think it was at Uinta Brewing. They brewed single hop beers with each of these hops. So the hops are Cashmere, Tahoma, Triple, Pearl, and Yakima Gold. We got to taste three of the hops in the seminar, Cashmere, Tahoma, and Triple Pearl. And then actually USA Hops uh, hosted a, um, a hospitality suite after that where they also poured a beer made with Yakima Gold. So it was super exciting. Um, to be able to go to this and learn more about the the U.S. hop industry. So actually, when you look at U.S., I learned actually a lot of facts that I didn't know and I think are really fascinating. First of all, the United States' is uh, hop production is actually accounting for just over 30% of global acreage. So that's actually a significant amount. Um, They talked a little bit about goals for public breeding programs. Um, One is powdery powdery mildew resistance. Um, So that's been really a primary goal for public breeding of hops in the U.S. for for quite a while. Um, Many of you know that the the hop-growing region is centered currently around Washington, Oregon, and California. But once upon a time, actually... um, in the last part of the 19th century, New York State was growing more hops than any other state in the country. Yep. Unfortunately, we were hit by um, downy mildew, which pretty much decimated the, the, the northeast New England crop. Um, so, if, you know, if we can ha- find some resistance to, to uh, powdery mildew as well as downy mildew. We'll be able to grow hops in more locations across the country. Um, the other things that they really look at for, for breeding hops, public hops, is increase of alpha-acid content, alpha contact and yield. Um, also, look, they're looking for low cohumulin. So cohumulin is a component of hops that actually, if, it ha- if it's low, it, it gives a smoother bitterness and also better stability of the hop. Um, they're also looking at spider mate tolerance and then, of course, aroma and flavor. So let's talk a little bit about these cashmere. So obviously, these are just coming out. They were just introduced in 2013. They're really, I guess, going to be, they'll probably start to be grown, I believe, this year. And we should be seeing these hops on the market in, you know, two I don't know, a year to three years. Um, I'm sure that, you know, some of the larger breweries will be able to get them pretty soon, and then we'll eventually see them on the homebrew market as well. Um, So Cashmere is the first one. It's actually a daughter of Cascade. It was released by Washington State University in 2013. So it's a daughter of a Cascade, but it also includes northern brewer germplasm through the male parent. The alpha acid content of Cashmere is higher than Cascade, and the, the, the notes on this are actually, it has strong melon, Fruity in the form of lemon, lime people, peel, pineapple, coconut, and spicy notes. Uh, and this was actually my favorite of the single hops. I think it really, man, it was just blooming. The aroma and flavor just blew me away. It was, had a lot of, uh, of fruity depth and all yeah. kinds of stuff going on. I agree with you in liquid form, but just in my hand, I like the Tahoma. Yeah. And I so, roll that up and put my head into it. Cause, oh, yeah, because they had actually, um, they had whole, we, they had whole hops that you could rub, actually, yeah. on the floor. So that was kind of cool. Uh, Speaking of Tahoma. Yeah. So that was released by Washington State University as well in 2013. It's a daughter of Glacier that retains the very low cohumulin characteristic of Glacier with somewhat higher alpha acid content. So they call it similar to Cascade. It's going to have a pleasant aroma with citrus notes, like lemon, grapefruit, uh, again, and cedar, pine, and spicy notes. Um, the third is called Triple Pearl. So that's a triploid daughter of Pearl that was released by the USDA ARS in late 2013. It's more of like a pleasant mellow aroma with some citrus, melon, resin, pepper, and spicy notes. 
Um, and then lastly is Yakima Gold, excuse me. And that is an early cluster and native Slovenian male child. Um, so the interesting thing about Yakima Gold is that it actually has a high percentage of farnesine in the oil. And farnesine is something that is associated with noble type and earthy type of hops. So saws, spalt, tetanang all have high percentage of um, farnesine. And that's something that really sets Yakima Gold apart from the other three releases. So really, depending what you're looking into in a hop, I mean, originally, I think most brewers, obviously, alpha acid has always been a primary concern. Mm -hmm. But more and more brewers are looking not only at beta acids, but cohumulone at farnesine, also storage. So they actually have storage statistics on all of these hops. They can say, okay, well, after a um, six months at you know twenty degrees Celsius, how much of that hop is gonna is gonna maintain? Um, so these are all thing, kind of things you want to look at. And now, I mean, at this point, we have so much selection of hops from all over the world, um, more hop varieties than than we've ever seen. And really, you know, you can drill it down a little bit more if you're designing an IPA or a session pale ale or or whatever style you're brewing. So anyway, I thought that was just it was really a fascinating seminar, and it's super exciting to see these hops being released and available to us. Um, and being grown in the USA. That's right. And USA is doing a lot of really great things. And we're going to wrap <laughs> this up real quick with uh, what they opened with at the CBC. Uh, you know, we've had, we have more breweries than ever before. Mm-hmm. We have, we have t- uh, breweries are literally opening every day. Um, and some of these people are, are just going straight from homebrew and, and into brewing, um, without too much formal education, but, uh, the beer is generally pretty good, but sometimes it happens that it's not so good. And so education is a really great thing. Uh, the UC Davis and my alma mater, uh, American Brewers Guild and Siebel, yeah. um, these are all really great programs and it's worth doing. Pro brewing is a different than, than home brewing for sure. There are different things to pay attention to and or consistency and quality are incredibly important. And uh, the main point in that opening statement was we're doing better than ever before. Don't fuck it up. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to go pro, uh, you know, it's be serious about it. Absolutely. Quality control is, is, is number one. Um, so we will be back next Monday with Robbie Crafton, who is brewing at Big Alice, as well as two of their interns. Um, and we're going to talk about Queen's Beer Week. Robbie was also at CBC, so we'll probably talk a little bit more about what he was struck by at CBC. And we look forward to talking to you on Monday, the April 21st. 21st. Forget about, about it. it. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.